Hey everybody, thanks for joining us for this live stream message from the Neighborhood Church. My name is Adam Wood, I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm glad that you've joined us. I hope that you stick with us. We're going to be continuing our story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, so maybe you can join us there here in a minute. We're going to look at the second half of the first sermon from the very first church. And the dramatic conclusion leaves us with this question, what do we do? So I hope you'll stick with us. Join me in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be there in just a moment. But first, I want to take just a moment to talk about Father's Day. And then I want to pray a prayer for our fathers and father figures in our life. So I want to start by talking about tomorrow, which is Father's Day. For many of us, Father's Day can be complicated. In fact, yesterday I was talking to one of my dear friends who is a Christian leader and pastor in Russia, and the work that he is doing is forming these spiritual formation cohort groups all over Asia and Europe, and he was telling me about one of these cohorts this past week, there was about 100 people on a Zoom call, and they were working through some past pain and trauma in their relationship with their father, and how that pain gets projected upon our Heavenly Father. And so much of his work is dealing with these false images of God the Father because we live in a world with, let's be honest, a lot of imperfect fathers. So it can be complicated for many of us, but it's also a day that can bring up a lot of pain because, man, some fathers are frankly just non-existent in our lives. A few years ago, I had a life-changing trip. It was a trip to Kenya with Sid and Kathy Kiesler, with Robin Craddock, these people who started an orphanage, they were running this orphanage in rural Kenya, and I was blessed to travel with them, and it was a trip I'll never forget. And the first day we visited that orphanage, I remember the evening where we were seeing their routine, where the house mothers would gather them together, and 60 children would say their bedtime prayers, they would talk about scripture, and they would sing a song. I remember that first night in that orphanage in Kenya with Sid and Kathy and Robin, and they sang a song that went like this. I have a father who never, ever fails me. And they would repeat that line over and over. I have a father who never, ever fails me. And it was beautiful and bittersweet and poignant because these 60 children did not have an earthly father within arm's reach. That relationship was a void in their life. But the song that they were singing continued and it got to this point in time where they would say, God is my father. And I just got to believe that the heavenly father who is continually bending toward the widow, the orphan, the brokenhearted, showing his tender care and concern for these orphans in particular, had done some work within them to bring them comfort and peace, even though that relationship with an earthly father was non-existent 
or as I just mentioned a moment ago, it can be complicated, or it can be a source of pain because you've lost your father in death. It can be a complicated day, but it's also a day worth celebrating for those of us who have a healthy relationship with an earthly father because it is a rare and beautiful gift. It's worth honoring and holding on to and celebrating. Also, for you who are fathers to little ones in your care right now, you who are father figures in the community around you, let me remind you, let me remind me that the love that you pour out is not wasted. It can last a lifetime. The time that you create and spend is time well spent. The energy and effort and sacrifice is worth it. So even though it can be complicated, even though it can be a source of pain, we still want to celebrate those healthy relationships. We want to encourage our fathers and father figures And so that's why I want to begin our time with a Father's Day prayer. This is written by Tony Rossi. And I hope that you will listen closely and join our hearts in prayer together. Eugene Peterson said that prayer is a soul at attention before God. And so when we pray together, we join our souls, our hearts together at attention before God. So would you take a deep breath, reflect on your own experience, and hear these words by Tony Rossi, a prayer for fathers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we ask you to bless our earthly fathers. For the many times they reflected the love, strength, generosity, wisdom, and mercy that you exemplify in your relationship with us, your children. We honor our fathers for putting our needs above their own convenience and comfort, for teaching us to show courage and determination in the face of adversity, for challenging us to move beyond self-limiting boundaries, for modeling the qualities that would turn us into responsible, principled, caring adults. Not all fathers have lived up to these ideals. So give them the grace to acknowledge and learn from their mistakes. Give us the grace to extend to them the same forgiveness that you offer us all. God, help us to resist the urge to stay stuck in past bitterness, instead moving forward with humility and peace of heart. God, we ask your blessing on those men who served as father figures in our lives when our biological fathers weren't able to do so. May the love and selflessness they showed us be returned to them in all their relationships and help them to know that their influence has changed us for the better. God, give new and future fathers the guidance they need to raise happy and holy children, grounded in a love for God and other people. And remind these fathers that treating their wives with dignity, compassion, and respect is one of the greatest gifts they can give their children. 
And finally, God, we pray that our fathers who have passed into the next life have been welcomed into your loving embrace and that our family will one day be reunited in your heavenly kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. We hope that our Heavenly Father finds you and uh, wraps you in his loving embrace this day and tomorrow and each moment in his name. Amen. I want to read the second half of the first sermon preached by the first church. It's in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We've been looking at this story in baby steps, and this passage we're about to read is dense. So I want to try to get the distillation of what Peter is saying, and I want us to sit with the question the crowd asks, what do we do? Again, let's look at the second half of this powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out, it's been a dramatic evidence of the work of God. Now Peter is explaining what this crowd has witnessed. He's just quoted the prophet Joel, and he says, this that you're seeing is about that, that promise that God will share his life and breath with you. And now he's going to turn to the second half of his message. You ready? Hope you're with me in Acts chapter 2. We're going to read a lengthy section from verse 22 on down to verse 39. Join me in the book of Acts chapter 2 and hear the word of the Lord. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through Jesus as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now pause and remember, this was recent history for this crowd listening to this. This is 50 days after the Passover festival and the public execution of Jesus. This was fresh. And he's saying not just you in a general sense. He's talking to the people that would have actually been complicit in this public execution. Woo! That's serious. Let's continue on in our text, Acts chapters 2. Uh, verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David, that would be David and Goliath, David, he said about him in the Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Do you see what Peter's doing? He's quoting the Jewish tradition, their Psalms from their king that they loved, and he's using it as a prophecy, a poem that's not just talking about David. Oh, he's talking about Jesus. Wait, the Jesus we just crucified? 
He was raised up. David's talking about him. He's got their attention. Verse 28. I love this. Would you circle this, underline this? Because there's a little sneaky Easter egg here. Hidden within this verse of this psalm, it's really going to come to fruition with these people that say, I was wrong about Jesus. I need to trust him. Here it is, verse 28. You've made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter continues, verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David, he died and he was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Okay, David, there's this old prophecy that there would be a greater king, the king, to come from David's family line and sit on the throne. Peter continues, verse 31. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, the chosen anointed king, that he would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Again, this is real present tense. This moment right now, Peter's saying, this that you're seeing is really about that. Our old promises are coming true in these last day moments. Pay attention. But just to drive the point home, he quotes David again, verse 34. Man, I told you there's a lot here, right? For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's saying, David's talking about Jesus, how he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's the ruling and reigning king. Verse 36, you still with me? Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, whoops, both Lord and Messiah. That's the bottom line of his sermon. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Woo! This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say thanks be to God. What a powerful message. I want to get into this, and we're going to see it in three movements. But let me ask you this question first. When was a time that you were convinced you were right, then you realized you were wrong, and you changed 
because of it. Let me say that again. When was a time in your life that you were convinced that you were right? You knew that you knew that you knew that you knew that you had it all figured out. And then suddenly, some experience or perspective or evidence realized you were wrong. And you had no choice but to change because of it. Now, this is what's going on in this passage that we just read. But before we dive back into that and look at these three movements, let me give you a silly example from my own life. 16 years ago, I started dating Amy. And because we were young and because we were broke, a lot of our dates involved going on walks. And I remember walking around a pond here in the area, and maybe it was the moonlight, or maybe it was the stars, or maybe it was because I thought I was spitting some serious game. I don't know. What do you think, Amy? But here's what I started to say, okay? Amy, I just, there's just something about you, and I just, you're just so wonderful, and man, I don't know what I was saying, but I was saying all these things to try to woo her. And I was trying to impress her. And because I thought I had a way with words, I really went out on a limb. And while I was searching for these words because of the moonlight and our walk in the park, I really went for it. And I was convinced that this was going to be a real game changer in our relationship. (laughs) And I looked at Amy when we were dating 16 years ago, and I said this, You know, I just, what's the word? Amy, you're just so rotund. Now, some of you are laughing. Some of you are Googling. You've heard that word rotund. I had heard that word rotund. I was convinced I was saying something magical. I was convinced that I was trying to put into words maybe what I was trying to say, you're full of life, you're robust or glowing. I don't know. I said, Amy, you're so rotund. Now, for those of you who just Googled this word, you will find that the first definition when speaking of a human being is this, plump. (laughs) As soon as I said this to Amy 16 years ago, convinced that I was right, convinced I was spitting some serious game, I saw her face change. And then I felt the sickening realization that I think I just did something wrong here. And then I realized that I had no choice but to change. And let me tell you, 16 years, I've never called her rotund again. I thought I was right. I realized I was wrong. And let me tell you, with God as my witness and by his grace... I've changed and I will not call any of you rotund. I've learned my lesson. Now, this is a silly example that illustrates the three movements that we see in this powerful, condensed sermon summary. When Peter's quoting David and he's talking about Jesus, the reason this is so powerful is because he's speaking to a crowd that were convinced they were right about Jesus. That's the first movement we're going to see. But then through Peter's words and the Holy Spirit, they're going to become convinced that they were 
wrong. And finally, the third movement is they're going to be invited to change. The reason why I think this is so important for this moment in our culture and in our history is we have a lot of people who think they are right about this or that. But I think if we were to open our minds and our hearts, we, like the crowd, might be convinced that there are some perspectives that are wrong. And the good news I want you to hear this evening is we're all invited to change. Not one person is a lost cause when it comes to the movement of the Holy Spirit and the invitation of Jesus. Even when we're convinced we're right, we find out we're wrong, there's always an invitation to change. But first, let's start with that first movement. These people, this crowd, people you know, people I know, me, you, we've been in a situation where we are convinced we're right. This crowd were convinced they were right about Jesus. Way back at the beginning of Jesus's revolutionary kingdom of God movement. He shows up on the scene and he says, the time has come, God's kingdom has come, and it's orbiting around me. Origen, an ancient theologian, said this, Jesus is the kingdom in person. Ooh, I love that. Jesus is the kingdom in person. That's from the ancient theologian Origen. Jesus shows up on the scene, the kingdom of God in person, but not everybody was buying it. Jesus goes into his hometown early in the book of Luke, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, the spirit of God is on me because the spirit has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, and to heal and to proclaim the year of God's favor, to bring liberation to those who are captive. And the crowd in his hometown were saying, okay, hmm, pretty bold, but I'll go with you on that. Until Jesus started to say, yeah, even if it's those kind of people and those kind of people that are outside of our ethnic boundaries, all of a sudden they tried to shut him up and kill him. From that moment on, they had figured out that they are convinced that they are right, that Jesus can't be the kingdom of God in person because it didn't vibe with what we know to be true, right? So then you see Jesus moving from village to village throughout his ministry, the kingdom of God in person, and he starts to go beyond the purity boundaries and the religious authorities and leaders, not just in his hometown, but everywhere he would turn, would take issue with the kinds of people that Jesus would touch. He would touch the untouchable lepers. He would speak to the unspeakable people, Samaritan women, Roman soldiers. He would do all of these things that is dragging us to the edges of society, and he's demanding that we follow. And when the religious elite saw that, they said, no, 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 this can't be what God's up to. I'm right. I know. I've got the corner of the market. They were convinced they had Jesus figured out. Ultimately, at the end of Jesus' 
public ministry. He rides into Jerusalem under the nose of Rome and with the opposition of his own people, everything swirling against him. He comes to show the kingdom of God in person, and he doesn't pick up a sword. He doesn't kill. Instead, he is killed because this kingdom is unlike any other kingdom, and it's invading earth. And these people were so convinced that they knew who Jesus was as a phony and as a fraud and as a pretend king. It even got so drastic, so explicit that they said, we have no king but Caesar. This man is not our king. Crucify him. They thought they were right about Jesus and they executed him. I've just got to wonder, when we have Jesus all figured out, and we put Jesus into that nice, cozy box, are we more like the crowd, or are we more like the disciples following a revolutionary king in a revolutionary kingdom? Let me ask this very carefully here. I wonder if we were to ask the American crowd that has everything right about Jesus enough to say, this is a Christian nation. You know, the Christian nation that was born by systematically removing and killing the indigenous peoples because God told us it was our manifest destiny. We're right here. We know this. A Christian nation that was built by kidnapping and enslaving African peoples. Because it's in the Bible, right? Even today, were we to ask the American crowd that has Jesus all figured out, because it's less important that we follow the Sermon on the Mount, and more important that we divvy up the world into us and them, I wonder how right is the crowd always about Jesus? I wonder if Jesus were to come to my hometown, my circle, my family, my community, and he started quoting Isaiah about good news to the poor and freedom for captives, I wonder, would I try to shut him up? I wonder if Jesus were here walking the streets in a physical body like he did those many years ago. And I wonder if we saw him downtown reaching out to those people and joining and following those on the margins so that he might welcome them into a bigger kingdom movement. Would we go with Jesus out to the margins? I wonder if Jesus came to us and spoke to the White House and my house and said, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? Even him, even them, even her. Are we listening or would we rather be right in our own minds i can't blame the crowd 
I can't blame the crowd that 50 days before Peter's sermon publicly executed him when they thought they were doing God's business. Maybe I'm a part of that crowd that needs to take a good hard look of how I've boxed God in, of how I've boxed my own perception in, because if it leads me to say that person or those people or that position is beyond transformation, maybe God needs to convince me that he's at work in ways I've never considered and that the kingdom of God is much bigger than I ever realized and that Jesus is much more revolutionary and full of grace and truth and maybe I need to shut up and listen and own the ways in which I don't have it all figured out. Maybe this cultural moment in the last month has sunk down into your own heads and hearts and said, you know, I realize that I thought I was right about this, and maybe I'm not. If it's leading you to a place of openness and compassion and reflection, I would ask you and me to honor that and listen to that. Because politics can get complicated, but the Spirit of God and the example of Jesus has made it a lot easier than we are willing to admit. You know what loving your neighbor looks like and what it doesn't look like. If you have the Holy Spirit of God, you know what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. Honor that compassionate kingdom impulse and don't let your desire to be right keep you from seeing the ways in which he is drawing you deeper in to life with him because that will lead you further out to a step toward neighbor. This crowd was convinced that they were right, but because they were listening closely, even though they had really blown it, because they were listening closely, they were able to admit and own the fact that maybe we didn't have it all figured out after all. So it gets us to that second movement. Peter and the Holy Spirit are going to convince them that they are wrong. So let me give you the quick distillation of this powerful, packed summary of Peter's sermon. He's quoting David, but let me give you the gist of what we just read in Acts chapter 2. You ready? Here we go. Peter says, hey guys, God was at work in the life of Jesus. Even though you didn't like who he was quoting, you didn't like who he was ministering to, you didn't like the kingdom that he was talking about because it looked a lot different from all the other kingdoms. Let me tell you, God was at work in Jesus. He says that in verse 22. There was miracles, wonders, and signs. God was working through him. You just missed it. Then he says, by the way, God wasn't surprised when you killed him. God was in this person of Jesus. On his march to the cross, he was going to reconcile the world to himself. He wasn't surprised by this. He knew this was going to happen. God was at work even in the crucifixion, even though you were the ones that killed him. Then he said, you can really know that God was at work in Jesus through the resurrection. And he says, but guess what? We kind of didn't see that coming either. So I know that you didn't see it coming. 
But God was at work when he raised Jesus from the dead. And so this quotation from David in Psalm 16 is saying, um, this one that he loved, this king that he loved, he wasn't going to let him sit there rotting in a casket. He raised him up to vindicate him, to show everybody that not even death could keep God's king down and his kingdom from coming. Jesus was vindicated by the resurrection and enthroned as the world's true Lord. So he ties up this passage that we looked at last week in Joel. You should know this because the Holy Spirit of God, long promised, is now here. Then he ties that first half with this second half. You should really know it because he's been raised, he's ascended, he's at the right hand, and he's the one that's poured out the Spirit. Verse 33 is how he ties those two halves together. Look at verse 33 with me again. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit that has been poured out in what you now see and hear. He's convincing them. He's pleading his case. From your own tradition, that is about this. But y'all, here's the bottom line. Here's where this whole dense sermon is pointing. Verse 36. You with me? Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, whoops, both Lord and King, Messiah. God was at work in him. You missed it. You thought you were right. But guess what? There's a gift in knowing you're wrong. Because then we can get to a place of transformation and change. A lot of times in our church, we say that awareness is a gift. Waking up out of ignorance is a gift because it gets you into a posture of transformation and change. The first step is recognizing I need to own something. I've made a mistake here. And what's powerful is the crowd really does own it. I love this phrase that you saw on the comment of this video here. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? I love that phrase that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, uses, cut to the heart. It's an expression that's never used again in the New Testament. I think if we were to translate it into a today popular idiom, it would be like they were punched in the gut. And I think what's happening here is it's moving from theory to experience. I'll say it this way. It's moving from a news headline to a new perspective. For them, 50 days ago, Jesus was just some other failed Messiah, some wannabe. But now they're convinced, they're punched in the gut, cut to the heart. It's moved from a news headline to a new perspective. It's moved from theory to experience. They're feeling it. I think it's a gift. Awareness is a gift to feel the pain of our brothers and sisters and neighbors, to feel the other perspective because it gets us to a place of growth and transformation. They're cut to the heart and they say, what do we do? Before we get to what do we do, our third movement, our third movement, let me tell you a story. I want to tell you a couple stories about a man named Daryl Davis. He's a professional musician turned lecturer, and he's a friend of Ku Klux Klan members. 
But here's the twist. Daryl Davis is a black man. You see, Daryl Davis shares some of this story in a TED Talk you can YouTube. And he shares this in a documentary film you can find on Amazon Prime called Accidental Courtesy. This remarkable vocation that he has taken upon himself to befriend Ku Klux Klan members is fascinating and remarkable to me. But in both of those places, the TED Talk and the documentary, he shares the origin. And it started when he was 10 years old. His family moved to Massachusetts, and he was one of two black children in the school. So he joins the Cub Scouts to get some friends, and shortly after he joins, there's a community parade in his town. And so the Cubs assemble, the Brownies and the Girl Scouts, you know, the community parades. And the Den mother decides that Daryl Davis is going to hold the American flag and lead his Cub Scout pack. Remember, he's the only black child there in that troop. So he's walking and they're doing their parade, 10-year-old Daryl Davis. And it wasn't long before he felt something hit him. And then he felt another thing hit him. And he realized he's getting rocks, pebbles, debris thrown at him. He looks around and he sees a group of white people throwing this debris at him. Of course, he's wondering, why is this happening? What's going on? But then the adults, his pack leader and den mother, they begin to surround him and shield him and protect him, and they move him to safety. And it's then that he realizes, oh, they're just shielding me. It's just me. So he asks them, why am I getting hit by all this stuff? But they didn't answer him. So he goes home, and he sees his parents, who weren't at the parade, his parents see the cuts and they're helping him, bandaging them. And they're saying, man, why did this happen? What happened? How did you fall? And he said, I didn't fall. And he told them what happened. A group of white people threw a bunch of debris on him. And it was then that his parents told him about racism. And Daryl Davis, both in the TED Talk and the documentary, in sharing this story, says, I didn't believe my parents. I could not believe that somebody could hate me because of the color of my skin. And the origin of the vocation for the rest of his adult life was started when he formed this question. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? This is the question that marked the trajectory of his adult life. He searched for answers. He looked at books. He went to Howard University. But he could never reconcile this question. How could you hate me when you don't even know me? And so he realized through a couple chance encounters, maybe I have an opportunity to ask someone that hates me directly. So he arranged through his secretary, who would book his gigs because he was a professional musician, to meet up with a national leader in the KKK called an imperial wizard. But he said, when you request an interview from this person, do not mention that I am black. So she set up the interview. They rented a hotel room. Here's Daryl Davis sitting in this hotel room. And in walks Roger Kelly, who is a national KKK leader with his bodyguard. 
You can imagine their surprise when they opened up the door to find a black man sitting in that room wanting to talk to them. All because he wanted to ask this question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? So his idea was, maybe we should listen to one another and get to know each other. So you can imagine that that conversation was pretty tense, right? Well, that conversation led to other conversations. And every time Roger Kelly would come, he would bring his bodyguard. And then Daryl Davis, a black man, invited this KKK leader to his house. And then they would have lunches and dinners. And eventually, the bodyguard wouldn't even come. It was just Roger Kelly. And then, later on, this Klan member invited Daryl, a black man, to his house. And he doesn't say this, but I've got to wonder, was that the first black person ever in that man's house? Eventually, this conversation, after this conversation, after this conversation, turned into a friendship, eventually leading Roger Kelly, an imperial wizard, national leader of the KKK, to renounce his ideology and leave the Ku Klux Klan. This man who was so convinced he was right was convinced he was wrong because of this transformational relationship of a man who spoke truth but also did so in a way that kept these people at the table. He renounced his ideology, he left the KKK, and he was changed because of it. Which leads us to our third movement. When you get yourself to a place of openness, to see how God is at work, to see how he's moving theory to experience, to open our ears, to listen, you get down to this question, I get it, it's sinking in, I'm punched in the gut, I was wrong. Then you can get to that question, what do we do? They're invited to change. Peter God could have said both, tough, too late. You're asking, what do we do? <laughs> Done. Sorry, time's up. You're out of here. But this isn't what happened. This is the generation that crucified Jesus. They missed the boat on what God was doing. But they have an opportunity through the reconciling work of the Holy Spirit to take a next step toward change. Peter doesn't say, you're done. God's moved on. No, God does what he always does with his people. He gives them an opportunity to return and be reconciled and to get on board with what he's doing. I want you to hear this. If you are living and breathing, there is always a next step to be taken with Jesus. Here, right now, there's a next step. Here, right now, I want you to understand, there is not a lost cause that is living and breathing on this earth. When the kingdom of God invades, when the Holy Spirit continues to invite, when Jesus stretches out his arms upon the cross, he is throwing a bear hug around the world, reconciling, inviting people to take a step back toward God. There is always another step to take with Jesus. 
And so these people, this generation that crucified Jesus is getting an opportunity to trust in Jesus, to have life with Jesus, to have life with these people that they would have been persecuting and hating. And so they say, what do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. What's fascinating is that Peter doesn't just call them out, okay? Now, there's something about calling someone out that exposes a truth or it exposes a wrong. But isn't there a better way? I think there's a next level, not just to call out, but to call up. To call up is to not only expose a truth, but it's to expose a next step. Obviously, Daryl Davis and so many can call out the bigotry and hatred and wrongheadedness from the KKK who sickeningly still think that they've got Jesus figured out, but they're wrong. We should call them out, but isn't there a better step for those that we know and those that we're engaging with, those that Peter's engaging with? Can't we call up? Can't we demand better? Can't we not only expose the truth, but expose a next step? Can't we expose, now here's what you might need to do about it? This is what Peter does. He says, repent and be baptized. To repent, hear this, is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. Jesus used this word day one of his ministry. Repent. You're headed toward a cliff. You're headed toward destruction. Your way of violence and sin is leading to death. So change your mind about what you're doing and then change your action. Get on board with me. You're headed toward destruction off the edge of a cliff. Repent means to turn around. Change your mind. Change in action. Repentance is always the invitation for when we realize we're wrong. Right now, you got to say repent for the first time and turn to Jesus, but for the rest of your life, when you go off track, you're invited to repent again, to turn back, change your mind about this sin, and it leads to a change in behavior. That's always the invitation. But then there's this other side of the coin that Peter says when he's calling them up to a next step. Repent, change your mind about Jesus, and then be baptized. Get baptized into this family. Take on the family name, the new life, the new Lord, the new way. Be baptized. If repentance is the invitation, baptism is the initiation. Through the waters of baptism, it symbolizes your new affiliation with Jesus as your Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, and you find forgiveness with Him. That's what Peter says. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, take on the family name, and you'll be forgiven, and you'll receive the very life of God. We said this a couple weeks ago. To be saved is to give your life to Jesus and find that God gives His life to you. It's eternal, it's transformative, it's through the Holy Spirit of God. Repent, be baptized, and you find forgiveness and a new life. For Daryl Davis and his KKK friends, the symbol of their repentance was that they gave Daryl Davis, this black man who had become a friend, they gave him their robes and their hoods. And Daryl Davis has a collection 
Over two dozen robes, hoods. He has belt buckles and cards and t-shirts and memorabilia. And it's a graveyard for that old, dead, wrong ideology and way of life. And that's the symbol that they've changed their mind and they've changed their action. For you and me and all that would change their mind about Jesus and come to him, the symbol for us is the waters of baptism. And for those of you who've drifted far and that baptism was a long way in the rearview mirror, you have an opportunity to turn back right now. You don't need to get re-baptized if you're in the family, but you have a next step right now to take with Jesus. So I want to close and just ask ourselves, what is it in this moment that we might need to reconsider about Jesus about our own perspectives, about our relationship to others. For those of you for the first time that are hearing this business about Jesus, he's offering his very life. He's offering forgiveness. He's offering a community. He's offering a new and transformative way that will transform the world. And for you, the first step is to repent, to find yourself swept up into his life by saying, Jesus, you are Lord I see you for who you are. And then get swept up into this new kingdom family. For others of us, we need to reconsider. We need to repent. We need to own some of these things, which leads me to that second question. If you have a sense that I'm wrong about this person, this position, I'm wrong, I'm cut to the heart. What is moving from theory to experience? What's moving from news headlines to a new perspective. What do I need to own? What do I need to forgive? Where do I need to be forgiven? Maybe that's some questions to sit with. And thirdly, finally, where am I invited to change? Where am I invited to be a part of change? Where am I called to call up? Where am I in need of being called up? To expose some truth, that exposes a next step. Wherever you are, whatever you're hearing, I want you to know there's always a next step to take with Jesus. So may we walk in his life, his grace, his truth. When he calls us up, it is as one who John says is full of grace and truth. So may you experience his grace in the places that you're wrong and may you hear his truth in the places that you need to know he is who he says he is. May we walk as people who are following the risen Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hardwood of the cross so that all might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, May bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Our reconciling King, amen. Amen. Go in peace.